0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This may be a funny way to start a sermon, but um, I want to jog a memory for those of you who are old enough to remember, which I am not. But in 1968, before I was born... (laughs) Oh, no! I see the torches being lit. In 1968, the, uh, the number, the top track on the Rolling Stones album, Beggar's Banquet. Yeah, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Keith Richards admitted that he didn't know whether it was a samba or a folk song, but it was written from the point of view of someone who felt like they were getting short shrift in the retelling of history. They were actually trying to take responsibility for many of the tragedies of that human history. And so in several of the verses of this song, it recounts, the killing of Tsar Nicholas and his family. It recounts the assassination of JFK. It also accounts for the crucifixion of Jesus, in which this individual is represented himself by saying it was he that sealed Jesus' fate. And the chorus of the song goes like this. Pleased to meet you, hope you guessed my name. Ah, what's puzzling you is the nature of my game." The name of the song by the Rolling Stones was called Sympathy for the Devil. Kids, the word sympathy is uh, means you feel sorry for somebody. Now, I would like to make from an irreverent song a reverent point. Because in that song, it was sympathetically saying, humans look too superficially at the way things unfold. That there is a deeper, darker reality that is often missed by you and by me, that the devil was trying to take credit for. There is no sense, in any sense, that one might have sympathy for evil. I think there was a kid's song we would sing in youth group where we would talk about the devil and we would stomp his face. That was the song, that was the chorus, right? (laughs) But there is, I'd like to argue, here at the beginning of a new series, from a certain point of view, a kind of sympathy that you can have for the devil, and and by that I mean this. In the gospel, if it be true, we see God having hatched a plan that means everything to disrupt the devil's plans and to lead to his ultimate destruction. Both at the beginning of the book of Ephesians and at the end of the book of Ephesians and for everything in between, there is an exploded view of what means to be the destruction of the one who is out for our destruction, the father of lies. And so this morning, we're going to start several months of listening to the book of Ephesians, which is beautiful, and it's brilliant, and it can also be bisected. I haven't used that word since geometry. You can bisect the book of Ephesians into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about the song of the gospel. The story that he has told, the melody that he means to move deeply within us. Chapters four through six is the dance of the gospel. That wherever you begin to believe and internalize and become to embrace and adore that which you've heard in that melody, that will lead to movement. And so for the first several weeks, the first eight sermons of this series all the way to Advent, oh my gosh, it's on its way. Christmas is coming. The goose is getting fat. we're going to listen just to the song of the gospel. We're going to hear that part that is meant to be music to us. And then starting January 1st, we're going to consider the dance, how the melody means to move us. Because that's how Ephesians is nicely split out. And that, friends, is actually the shape of how we understand the gospel. What he has done first, what we do in response. They are separate. They are distinct. But they work together for always, just as Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers can't dance but for the song beneath them. So this morning, we're going to consider sympathy for the devil. The reasons one might have, again, tongue in cheek sympathy. And those reasons boil down to three from just the first two verses of Ephesians the singer, the audience, and the song. The authority of the singer the identity of the audience, the simplicity of the song. Let's consider these first two verses in which much is packed. Don't be confused. Let's hear first the introduction to the song. So I wonder if you might stand. Edward Isingoma is going to come and read for us the first two verses. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning from verse 1 to verse 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you. I'm going to pray once more. Father, I know that there are people in this room who have nothing in them that wants to sing and even less to want to dance. And I would pray that you would help us to sing over them in love as you do for us, and that they might find the song again in you. In Jesus' name, Amen. In my high school English class, we would sometimes ask the teacher as we were beginning a new piece of literature, we would say, the introduction, do we have to read that? And the teacher would give us the stink eye and, and look at us as if to say, if, if the introduction weren't important, why would they publish it, you adolescent fools? The introduction was in there for a reason. These first two verses in the letter to the church that's associated with Ephesus is pretty much the standard kind of greeting that Paul does in every one of his letters, which is all the more reason why we got to go, okay, why is this important if he just says sort of essentially the same things in every one of his letters? And yet, my friends, look, it's, it's like that every time you write a letter, for those of you that still do, you usually write dear whatever. I mean, dear just kind of sounds like that's just sort of a convention. We just write that, but think about that. Dear Like, you are dear to me. Some of you kids are going, oh, that's what that means. Um, That's, and we just gloss over it. And here in the very first two verses of this letter, you and I are tempted to gloss over it. But I am trying to slow us down, because I need to be slowed down to take every word seriously, because inasmuch as these are things that Paul typically says in every one of his letters, And we want to say to ourselves, can we just sort of get to it? Can we get to the matter of it, friends? These first two verses is it. And so we're going to take them seriously. Because I think here in these first two verses, we're going to find reasons that we have sympathy for the devil. And by that I mean, sympathy for the devil is meant to be encouragement for those who are his enemies. And you are his enemies. And I think that first reason boils down to, we'll just call him the singer. For the moment. I'm speaking metaphorically, but I'm speaking of Paul because that's who identifies himself in verse one. Paul. And look, if if you are here not as one who who ascribes to Jesus any faith, but simply respect, I can understand fully while you that you might hear this first word and think, this guy's a loony. Or even more charitably, he's just arrogant because of what he says about himself. And I would understand that if you came from that perspective. But look, quibble with him if you will. Marvel at his ability to speak of himself in this way. If you know anything about Paul's story, you can't simply or quickly easily dismiss that story or his account of himself. Not if you want to be honest. Not if you want to be honest with him. He is the last person person you should ever expect ever being a spokesperson for Jesus in the gospel because he was the first one in line, if you will, to conspire to the destruction of the church, to silence the song that they were singing. That was him. And of all the characters that you find in the New Testament next to Jesus, it is Paul who is most notable, not just for what he said, but for what he suffered. Now, you and I know people in history or in our family, or in our city, that suffer for all sorts of things. And what they suffer for in no way proves the truth of what they're suffering for. I know that. But if you find somebody suffering for what they hold to, you at least have to hear them out. And Paul gives us reasons for having to hear him out when he says, Paul, an apostle... An apostle of Christ Jesus. That word apostle, it it means generically being sent. But it has a technical sense to it here. He has been particularly and officially sent. Sent out from where he was. Sent with a particular message. Sent for a particular purpose. He has been sent. That's what it means to be an apostle. And to be sent in that way means that he didn't choose this. This was not his idea. It was not upon his whim because he was having a midlife crisis and he thought, I'll just sort of let it all go and go do this. I'm feeling empty. How about this to fill the hole? When Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, he says he was done so, quote, by the will of God. God called this shot. God made this happen. And as soon as you and I hear this, we modern people, we hear by the will of God, there's a part of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that's a little bit ambivalent if you live in the West or you live in modern industrialized technological culture. Because if you hear somebody say, if somebody comes to your front door this afternoon and says, Hi, I've been sent from God, I know what your first thought will be. Honey, call 911. Because you and I think, like Philip Yancey thinks, many of the times in which we wonder if God's fingerprints are in anything, it takes a long while in us looking back before we ever really are confident that that was his that he left. But the theme of God's activity and intervention in individual lives at individual moments in history, look, you can't read the, lesson, the letter of Ephesians unless you at least entertain the possibility that God is not a spectator. He didn't wind up the clock and go, "Let's see how this unfolds." That will is at work in things, and look, if you know Paul's story, um, here's a wonderful painting by Caravaggio. That's a real Caravaggio for those of you that were here last week, two weeks ago. There's Paul. You know, back when Paul was white and clean shaven. Um, (laughs) Sorry. You know Paul's story. He's on his way to squelch the church, and then he has a vision of Jesus himself who says, why are you persecuting me? And the scales fall from his eyes, and everything changes for him, and he is set on a different course. And that's why you and I at least have to acknowledge on the front end or at least tentatively ascribe to him the possibility that, in fact, this singer of the gospel has a certain authority. And I might just say as a side note that anybody that claims an authority, that authority is only valid to the extent that they see themselves in submission to one greater than themselves. No one asserts authority. No one can claim authority without also demonstrating a sense of being in submission to another. And he does. And so he does. But let's be frank. Paul is saying... If he's saying he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, then Jesus is more than a sage. He's more than a wise figure. He's more than a religious presence. Otherwise, he, Paul wasn't sent. You know, Jesus was just a teacher. I'll be a lecturer on his behalf. But sent by God? No, I'm just impressed by him. Paul is saying, I have been impressed upon God by God upon myself. Now, there's a vibe that we all feel in modern culture that we kind of feel like Jake and Elwood Blues. We, we, we think we're on a mission from God, right? They're, they're there to raise funds for the, for, the, for the orphanage. And so three or four times in that film, you hear Jake and Elwood say, yeah, we're on a mission from God. And that's, it's funny, it's parody, but what's the underlying joke there, friends? There is no one on mission from God. And that's an art form that plays with that. And you would expect it, right? It's, it's just how we are. We are in a disenchanted culture. Here's one example of that disenchantment playing itself out in art form. But if I might just here at the front end of the book of Ephesians push back lightly with another art form to suggest that there is such thing as one impressing upon others, like God upon others, to go as a singer with authority. I may have played this for you before, but um, back in 1987, uh, Les Mis, the musical, you may have heard of it, uh, first debuted in in New York on Broadway. And 2020, uh, back in the day of journalism, uh, sorry, they interviewed two of the directors of the musical who were there honest enough to say, what is at the center and at the heart of the whole story? And what you're going to hear here is them describe the feeling that they had and the feeling that the whole company had the very first time that they heard Colm Wilkinson sing what is arguably the emotional center of the whole musical. So just listen to them talk about the song and what it signified to them and to us. We realized that he was onto a a very wonderful idea, I mean a song that would express something very religious that would be prayerful. Easier. And then came the day when Colm sang it to the company for the first time. Right suddenly, out came this remarkable noise. You can take, you can get, let him be. And by the end of it, the company were completely stunned. They were absolutely silent. It was Trevor who said to everybody, well, that's the prayer. And I told you, he said, I told you that this show was all about God. And one of the actors said, yes, but you didn't tell us you'd engaged him to sing it. That stuck with me since '87. I was 16 when I saw that. Like, I'll never forget that. What is he suggesting in the moment, metaphorically speaking? That, that the inescapably human singer of Colm Wilkinson, portraying the inescapably human character of Jean Valjean, was nevertheless singing in a divine register. That there was something human that had found and tapped into that which was sacred. And I... I am here to suggest to you here on the front end of listening to Paul talk to these so-called Ephesian folks is that he is inescapably human, but he is speaking in a divine register that gives him authority. And you might then wonder, so how do I, how do I if I could just suggest to you how to apply this idea here at the front end of the, this first point. This whole moment about thinking about Paul reminded me of an article I read several years ago by a guy named Joe Carter who, who wrote an article called um, How, Do you Change, How Do You Change Your Mind? And it's in the sermon resource doc if you want to read up on it further. But he, he speaks of um, a plan that he suggests to everybody when it comes to a book of the Bible And we did this on the men's retreat last weekend, and it was wonderful, and and we all should do it more often. But it was his recommendation that you pick up any book of the Bible and you read it 20 times in its entirety, at least. But you never just sit down and read a paragraph. You read the entirety of the work if you can, and then you do that 20 times. And that somehow in the course of you attending to that, to being silent before it, something may shift in you as you begin to internalize what you find. And he finds... Um, uh, a theologian of the 19th century named uh, David Gr- James Gray, who who met a man who was just demonstrated this this equipoise and this this inner stability that he that he just couldn't fathom, and he asked him why why is it that you manifest that kind of contentment, like we spoke of last week at the end of the Ten Commandments, and and he said this: I saw something in his Christian life to which I was comparative stranger. Peace. A rest, a joy, a kind of spiritual poise I knew little about. And one day I ventured to ask him how he had become possessed of the experience. And when he replied, by reading the epistle to the Ephesians. In its entirety in one sitting. And to do that no fewer than 20 times. You maybe already got your rhythm. And I'm not here to change your rhythm on what you might be doing. But if, I might, if you have no rhythm right now... <laughs> Might I commend to you a certain challenge that I am taking up myself. And that is that every time you sit down to read the book of Ephesians, you read it in its entirety. I, I clocked it this morning. I did it again. It took me about 15 minutes. If you don't have 15 minutes, then come up to me afterwards and blink twice to let me know that you may be held under against your will. Um, because everybody's got 15 minutes. And Joe Carter's honest enough to say, by the eighth or ninth time, you're going to feel like the runner that's like, I can't go no more. Push through. Let's see what happens. If the authority of the singer is that true authority, then maybe there's something to being silent and attentive before him. That's the authority of the singer. And that's one reason to have a kind of quote unquote sympathy for the devil because of that authority. But now let's talk about the identity of those to whom he is singing the audience, if you will. Now, uh, if you like a song, then um, you may end up loving it so much that you like to sing it whenever you can, in the car, on a walk, in the shower. Oh, holy night. That's what I like to do in the shower sometimes. Um, and I don't care if you don't like it. Uh, because there is something about that song that just sort of resonates with me, and, it, and you have your song, whatever it might be. But that song you're singing to yourself, you don't care if anybody else is listening. The The nature of the gospel, if you want to style it as a song, and I'm speaking in metaphor there, it is not a song that is sung for its own sake. It always has an audience in mind. And that audience may be you yourself, that you need to have it sung to you, over you. You need to sing it to yourself. Yes, you do. Or it may be somebody that you sing it to also. It's meant to be heard. It's not just meant to be sung for its own sake, because every time the gospel is uttered, it's supposed to have an audience in mind. So what is the identity of the audience sung by this singer who has authority? That audience is known as, according to Paul himself, as the saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. All right, now when you and I think of saints, we think of Drew Brees, or we used to think of Drew Brees. Or it's very possible that when I use the word saint, you immediately impose upon the meaning of that the word saintly. And I understand why you would make that distinction. Um, that's why we think people with halos, those are the saints. Our Roman Catholic friends, they have a whole developed system of assigning honor to those that they believe distinguish themselves in lives of faith, hope, and love. And they are conferred with Sainthood, that's the word they use. Oh, those are the saints. Paul is not styling it in that way here. With all due respect to our Roman Catholic friends. Saints has a relationship to the idea of saintliness. But here, when Paul is talking about to the saints in Ephesus, he's talking about those who have been set apart for God's purposes. That's it. The ones who have been called out. The ones that have been brought in. And yes, again, I'll say it again. Saint, to be a saint, is to have a relationship to this idea of saintliness. And don't worry, we're going to get there. But if you confuse saint with saintliness, you must understand that if you read the rest of Ephesians, like you will, it will not be long before you realize These are not people who walk as if levitating above the ground with halos over their head. How many times is he going to have to talk about impurity, immorality, idolatry, all sorts of things? The fact that he has to write the letter alone should tip us all off to the fact that when he uses the word saints, he knows full well. He's talking about you and me. Saints? Really? Saintly, Not so much. This is is what it is to be a saint. Not everybody who is a sinner is a saint, but everybody who is a saint is a sinner. And so by way of rhetorical device, I might ask you, are you a saint? And I'm not asking you if you're saintly. I'm asking you, are you a saint? Have you been set apart? Let me tease that out. Allison mentioned the Becoming Family class that starts in a couple weeks. It's, it's an opportunity to figure out what does it mean to be a member of this body. And not to, you know, steal our thunder, but maybe I will. If you end up wanting to become a member of this body, you will sit down in an informal, non-threatening way and talk with one of our elders about you and about your story and about how Jesus became part of your story. And in, in the course of that conversation, I'm kind of giving away the test questions before, shame on me, they will ask you, are you a Christian? Not to trip you up. They will say, What does God think of you? And if you say in response to the question, Am I a Christian? And you say, Well, I'm trying to be. Or if you say in response to the question, What does God think of you? And you say, Well, I think He tolerates me. Then that's the point at which one of the elders will say, You know what? Let's pause here a second. Let's make doubly clear, triply clear, what does it mean to be a Christian? Not that you are aspiring to be one. Because the identity of a Christian is one that is not something that you attain. It is an identity that you are given. You do not reach it. You receive it. That's the identity of a saint. And if you don't grapple with that, then you shouldn't step forward. Do not pass go. Everything starts there and everything will continue there for the rest of your days on this earth with breath in your lungs is to remember that the identity of a saint is one that is bestowed upon you. Now things follow from there. Change occurs as a consequence of having been made a saint. Renewal is in your future. Struggling as it might be in the process. But the identity that you have as a saint is one that you receive, not one that you attain. Worth, your worth to God, to borrow a phrase from Karl Barth, has been taken entirely out of your hands. Your place at his table comes from him. And as a saint, you exist in a certain locale. These saints, they're in Ephesus. Now, the earliest manuscripts of this passage does not even include the words in Ephesus. It just sort of came uh, over time to be associated with the church that is in there. And that's helpful to us in this sense. I don't care where you are Asheville, Hendersonville, Etowah, whatever. Everywhere you are as a saint, you have a, you're a saint in a place with which you must reckon. You are sent to a place. But what is the mark of one who is sent? Finish the phrase, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful, the believers in Christ Jesus. What's the mark of a saint? It's one who has come to believe that Jesus is actually more than a teacher, and that his death was more than just a tragedy, though it was that. It is to believe that he has done more for us than anybody else could have done for us and no one else since. It has come to see him as our hope. To which we hold. But to say that phrase, the faithful in Jesus Christ, you might think the grammar of it there, oh no, grammar on Sunday, please. That we're talking about Jesus as the object of our faith. Like my, the object of my faith is this platform. I stand on it, I believe it will hold me up, so my faith is in the platform. That's not the grammatical phrase here. To be those who are believers in Christ Jesus is in some ways, Kind of like the same way we talk about the saints in Ephesus. It's in a location. Those who are believers in Christ Jesus is talking about metaphorically like a location. You are in Christ. One of the most important doctrines that you and I can ever get our hands around is the idea that we have been united to Jesus by faith. That's what it means to be in Christ. We are in him. And boy, are we going to tease that out through the entirety of this letter. You're going to hear it for the next three weeks in particular. What does it mean to be united to him by faith? What does it mean to be in him? And if I might try to clarify that here on the front end very briefly by way of a contrast. In six weeks, there will be an election and mercifully, then it will be over. And then we can get back to the hard work of discovering what should the ethnicity of mermaids be. thank you for laughing. (laughs) But when it comes to whoever you might vote for, the reason you vote for them is because you share their priorities, you share their values, you align with their particular platform and their policy um, uh, pronouncements. You align with that, you share in that. Look, to be in Jesus, is far less than what you share in alignment with him so much as what he shares with you. And to be united in Christ by faith is that he shares everything of himself with you. Not only his benefits, but himself. Uh, Craig and Andrew and I had a conversation a couple weeks ago about what's the difference between the way of Buddha and the way of Jesus? There's a great deal of overlap between those traditions. They are both a way of wisdom. They both articulate a way of wisdom. And they're both out to remove some of the delusions that we are all held captive to. But the one thing, one thing, one mighty thing that distinguishes the way of Buddha and the way of Jesus is that in the way of Jesus we are accompanied. We are accompanied by him. We are indwelt by his spirit. More on that later. He is more than just someone who is an example to us. He is more than just a memory of what he is. He's more than just a guide. He is there. He is present, and he is an advocate. Your identity as a saint, if you are a saint, by faith in him, is that he is one who accompanies you and who is for you. And that leads us then to the last question. What is... If we understand the authority of the singer and we grapple with the identity of the audience, then what is the song that we're all listening for? What is that melody that we're all listening for that we hope we can so come to understand and internalize that we are singing it to ourselves and singing it to others that have no place in it? There's a simplicity to it, friends. This is the song. This is your song. It might be simple, but <laughs> let me lay it in simplest terms. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the simplicity of the song. Grace to you comes in this way. Through Jesus, you have the favor of God and the forgiveness of God and the future of God and all by the work of Christ himself. That is grace to you. You know what the other side of the coin of his grace to you is? He is the great disruptor and destroyer of the devil. There was a sermon that St. Augustine preached back in the 4th century in which he uttered this Latin phrase, crux muscipulum diaboli. You know what that means? It means that the cross is the mousetrap for the devil. There's a wonderful triptych Painted back in 1400 by a guy named Robert Campin, and it's the Annunciation of Jesus. Again, when everybody was very pale in Palestine. That's why they call it Palestine. Sorry. (laughs) Hey, I'll be here all week. There it is. It's the Annunciation to Mary. The angel has come to Mary. You will give birth to a son, and he shall be called Jesus. But on the right hand side, who's that on the right? That's Carpenter Joseph. That's Papa Joseph. And we zoom in on Joseph, what do we see him doing? He's doing his carpentry work. And what is he building? Look closely there on the table. You know what that is? That's a mouse trap. Because Robert Campen apparently found a copy of St. Augustine's sermon and thought, bingo. What does Augustine say in that sermon? That the cross set out the food to entice the devil. And Jesus was that food, and the devil bit down, and snap! It was the beginning of his demise. That's his grace to us. That's the gospel. Forgiveness, favor, future, and a mousetrap for the devil. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And that grace to you is meant to have an effect. And that effect is peace. If you're a saint who's come to believe that Jesus is Lord, then you are at peace with God, full stop. You are at peace with God. And that is meant to create something within you that feels a little like peace or strength against a storm or against profound disappointment or against being up against the brick wall of the injustice of the world. There is something for you in Him as a consequence of what He did. What does that peace mean? It kind of gives you a whole new motivation for what it means to obey the Lord. And there's, you don't, you think that's sort of obvious, right? But friends, look, I, I know full well what it means to obey the Lord out of fear of what happens if I don't. But let me borrow a phrase from Pasternak and Dr. Zhivago when he made a very profound recognition about two ways of living. He said this, I think that if the beast who sleeps in man could be held down by threats, any kind of threat, whether of jail or of retribution after death, then the highest emblem of humanity would be the lion tamer in the circus with the whip, not the prophet who sacrificed himself. But this is just the point. What has for centuries raised man above the beast is not the club, but an inward music. The irresistible power of unarmed truth. That's Zhivago's way of saying, if you want to look for music that will lead you to want to follow the Lord, not out of compliance or out of fear, but out of gratitude for what he's done, you look to the prophet who sacrificed himself. That's a whole new way of motivation. That's a motivation at peace. And not only is that peace meant to show you a different way of being motivated to follow him, it's also meant to motivate the whole way you do life. Oliver Berkman, he's a Brit, he's an author, and he is no believer. But he wrote something last week that kind of makes you go, wow, he kind of gets something that maybe even many of us in this room, maybe myself at many times, don't really realize. He read a a book by a Christian and and he was writing an essay about how you and I, we live for productivity. We live or die by our productivity. We make our marks, we get a raise, but that kind of works itself into us such that if we don't get stuff done, we feel awful. We feel that way. Who told you to feel awful if you didn't get stuff done? But listen to what he said. What if you were to proceed on the basis that the quest for salvation through productivity was never going to work? In Christianity, this idea takes the form of grace, the principle that God offers you peace before you do anything. You don't accomplish things in life in order to attain peace. That's unnecessary. It's hubristic, which means it's just full of yourself. He says that. He recognizes what the grace that comes to us through the gospel is. And then if he's honest with himself, the way the world works, while Christianity to him, he has no place for it. He doesn't think it holds. But listen to what he says about the other way other people live. When I think about it, I'm obliged to concede that the culturally dominant view that says you do need to accomplish things in order to achieve a baseline level of okayness, that's certainly no more rational or logical or scientific. There are no real grounds for it. Letting go of it, at least for a little while, is as easy as remembering that I can do so. Do you hear God knocking on his door? He is aware that those of us who think, I am okay when I am productive, he's saying, that's faith, man. That's not science. That's not grounded in anything more than what you want. There's something to this piece. That's the simplicity of the gospel. How do you apply it? when there is an absence of peace in you, and we all have the moments, we all need to be asking ourselves a question. What's up? And it's almost like we're going to a doctor to inquire what's going on. And if you ever saw the film Lars and the Real Girl, which I know is based upon a premise that makes you go, what? And then you read and you go, okay, okay, that's, that's benign. Lars is a troubled man who's had a troubled past. And he ordered one of those dolls, not for the reason that you think, but as a companion. And he really thinks that the companion is alive. And he, and he thinks of her as a missionary from South America. It's great. But he ends up seeing a doctor who is the closest thing to the Jesus figure in any one story I can point to in a long time. It's my favorite character. And she has invited Lars to her office to talk to him about what's going on in him. And listen to the exchange that they have. So you don't let people touch you. Lars, isn't that hard to get away with? No, I'm not really here, because I have all these layers. And that helps. Look, we can't change Karen. But I can help you. Pain? Yeah, but I can take it. Mm. You okay? Uh-huh. Well, that's enough for today. come to discover eventually what is the cause for his fear of being close of that intimacy where he has no peace and just as you go to a doctor's office and the doctor wants to ask you a bunch of questions that you might listen to your body friends there's a reason that jesus calls himself the physician he is asking us to listen to our souls and where there is no peace to ask ourselves why why are you downcast O my soul the psalmist says why is there turmoil within me Look, I know very well that life is complex and I know that that's not a simple sort of question to say, why am I not at peace? But in your own little inventory, there's at least two questions, two possibilities about you or not. Either you have flouted the grace of God. You have lived as if you were own God and you would find your own way. Or you have forgotten the grace of God. That in your weaknesses and your failures, you thought, He has washed His hands of me. And therefore, to apply this idea that you are His, where there is no peace, it is always worth asking the question how does the grace of God apply in the moment? That's what you do with the passage. And that's where we come to this table. The table he set for his disciples and at the same time set a mousetrap for the devil beneath their seat and at his cross. We have come to find grace and help in time of need that we might know his peace again, peace that passes all understanding. So we should pray. Let's do that now. Father, we ask that you would help us now to consider ourselves before we come to this table. Not that we be sinless, but that we acknowledge what we can and to run for refuge unto your mercies. That you might help us to love again, to walk again in you, and to find the melody that we've let drown out by other songs. We praise that you come for us that you sing to us and sing over us even when we can't find the strength to sing ourselves. And now we ask that you would strengthen us by what we're about to partake in Jesus' name. Amen.